0: Come with me, please, to the book of Acts, where, Lord willing, we will finish chapter 2 today. So far in this book, we've seen how Jesus gathered 120 believers in Jerusalem after He had already met with some in Galilee, and before their eyes, He ascended to the Father after He promised again for the final time that He was going to send the Holy Spirit Then that group stayed together in Jerusalem. In the next several days, they prayerfully anointed a man named uh, Matthias and appointed him to fill the vacancy among the twelve apostles that was created by Judas Iscariot having walked away and then taking his own life. It was at the Feast of Pentecost, which comes 50 days after Passover which means it was 50 days after Jesus was crucified that was when the holy spirit arrived and what an arrival it was started out with a sound like a, a a tornado or a hurricane only there was no air moving that started to gather a crowd then came this ball of fire that broke apart and distributed itself and rested upon each of the 120 Who were there, but it wasn't a fire that is hot and consumes. It was a symbol of the power of the Holy Spirit. And then the third miracle that accompanied that arrival was uh, enabling those 120 people to begin speaking and declaring the great deeds of God, the mighty deeds of God in languages that they did not know. So that all the people who had come to Jerusalem for that feast began hearing them say these things in their own languages. A big crowd gathered, not surprisingly, and Peter stepped forward along with the other 11 and preached a marvelous sermon. It's Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 36. It was the first evangelistic evangelistic sermon in the book of Acts. It was the first evangelistic sermon in the new covenant era. Peter did a masterful job with that sermon, the highlights of which are recorded by Luke. He did a faithful exposition of three Old Testament passages. He started with Joel chapter 2, where he made the point that, he made the point that this arrival of the Holy Spirit was the next step in the kingdom program of, the, of God. And the death, burial, and resurrection of the Messiah meant the Holy Spirit would now come upon those who believed in Him. And Peter made the airtight connection from Joel's prophecy through what had happened that day to, specifically, Jesus of Nazareth. Next, Peter showed that not only had the prophets like Joel predicted what was happening, but King David had predicted the resurrection of the Messiah. He did that with a little exposition from part of Psalm 16. And finally, he showed from Psalm 110 that the Messiah would ascend to the Father. Now, the conclusion of Peter's sermon was unmistakable. Acts chapter 2, verse 36. He says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know. Now, he said that because his audience was 100% Jewish. It extends from there. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. To his Jewish audience, that was an earth-shaking declaration. Peter was asking his brethren to recognize they had been completely wrong about Jesus. Their leaders had told them, this man has to die. And today we're going to see the aftermath and the impact of Peter's sermon when he calls them to a whole new direction. Now our text unfolds just as logically as did the sermon itself last week. So again, a a long outline, but we will move quickly through it. We're going to see the compelling question in verse 37, and then compelling answer number one, and then compelling answer number two. Then a colossal response changed lives, corporate testimony, and continuing evangelism. Well, Peter had them; they were they were absolutely rapt, and they wanted to take the next step. So, verse thirty-seven. Now, when they heard this, heard what? God made this Jesus, the Jew, crucified your Savior and your Lord. That's what they'd heard. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? There's a slightly better way that I would translate that question. I would make it, what should we do? The Greek is actually a subjunctive, and for the two of you that have a clue what that means, good on you. Um, But they're saying, what's the next thing that we really need to do? That same Holy Spirit had, who had produced those miracles of the, uh, the, the sound, the, the fire, and the, and the languages, that Spirit was now working individually in the hearts of thousands in that crowd, and they wanted to know the right thing to do. Now that they knew, this Jesus is not one who must be killed. He is the Messiah. Well, they were pierced to the heart. Pierce is a word that occurs only here in the New Testament. It describes something penetrating, something sudden, something unexpected. Peter's words, which of course were guided by the Holy Spirit, indicted them for their heinous rejection of the Messiah. I remember as if it was yesterday what happened long, long ago. The first time I heard the gospel, pierced to the heart, he a good description of that, and I'd never read Acts 2. I didn't know Acts was a book of the Bible. Um, it, it, it grabs you. It pierces you. And the right thing is to, to ask is, what should we do? Now that shows how the gospel works. When the truth of a person's guilt before God for their sin and for not yet yielding to the Savior, that pierces the heart It brings you to that question, now what? Like Paul when he was knocked to the ground, and or Saul when he was knocked to the ground in Acts chapter 9, Lord, what shall I do? Um, That is the right question. And in our passage, the answer comes twice. It comes in different words. So let's look at compelling answer, number one, answer to the compelling question, verse 38. Peter said to them, Repent. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He didn't say, Look inside yourselves and follow your hearts. He didn't say, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. He said, Jesus is Lord, and He's the Messiah. And He died, and He buried, and He rose again, and He ascended to the Father, and He's coming again. Repent. That's the most immediate and specific answer. Repent. Repent means to turn away from the evil that you had done. Remember when God sent John the Baptist, the first prophet, in 400 years? What was His message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You need to line yourself up under this king. So to repent means to turn away from the evil you've done. It means to abhor the sins that you've committed. It means to do a complete turnaround in your life and to humble yourself under Jesus' teaching. Repentance is fundamentally a change of mind which is so complete that it changes your direction. The Greek word repent. Um, metanoia, the, the noun, metanoia, oh, the verb. It means to, to think after, to have an, off, an afterthought, to change the way you uh, that, that you're thinking. So true repentance encompasses, first and foremost, your intellect. It encompasses your will, and it encompasses your, mo- your emotion. Your intellect is affected when you realize the truth. Uh, then we preach truth. Your emotion is affected when you recognize your guilt for what you have done and you you sense the appropriate remorse for offending God. Then your will is affected when you make the choice to do the right thing and to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the first way that a person who turns to Jesus Christ is to show that he or she has truly repented is... The next command, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. That is the sign, that's the outward demonstration that a person belongs to the group that follows the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a false kind of repentance when a person dreads getting in trouble, uh, fearing the consequences of sin, but true repentance dreads sin itself. False repentance doesn't want to get in trouble. True repentance realizes that in order to face God, your sin has to be removed and forgiven. Something else Peter didn't preach that day was, you know, he gets us. Um, Peter didn't mince any words. God made Jesus Lord. They were pierced to the heart. What do we do? What do we do? Repent. And each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus. Um, they didn't leave any room for... the Peter and the disciples didn't leave any room for secret disciples. No, my friends, here we are out in public, in the crowd, in Jerusalem, right in the shadow of the temple, right in the headquarters of the, uh, of the leadership of the men that told you to kill Jesus. And I'm calling you... No turn around, repent, be baptized in His name. There's an interesting little nuance there too. Uh, The the verb repent, that that command is, is plural. I'm calling everyone here to repent. That's the universal invitation. Jesus is Lord. He died for our sins. Repent. Then He says, and each one of you, be baptized in the name of Jesus. And that's singular. So yeah, there's, a, there's the call to everyone, but you individually must repent and be baptized. Now, um, there's this phrase, for the forgiveness of your sins. And that admittedly is a battleground. If this was the only verse we had on how to be saved we would think that baptism was required for uh, salvation. This is the, the, the proof text for people who believe that doctrine called baptismal regeneration. That you hear the word, yes, you believe, yes, but you're not saved until you are baptized. There are other wrinkles of that. You, you don't receive the Holy Spirit Until you are baptized or you don't enter the body of Christ until you uh, submit to uh, water baptism. And that interpretation or all the wrinkles of it ignores the historical context of this passage. They understood what it meant to be baptized in someone's name. It means, I believe what he says, I'm going to follow him. Starting with John. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he introduced them to the king. Jesus came and preached. What did he preach? Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand, because I'm the king. I'm, I'm here. Baptism was a dramatic step to say, I am declaring my allegiance. And Peter called them to be openly, publicly identified with Jesus through baptism. Now, that was serious. I mean, it's a serious step for anyone, but in their situation... To be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ would almost certainly result in them being expelled from the synagogue. Remember the, the man in John chapter 9 that was blind and Jesus healed him? And in his case, he made it a two-step process so the guy had to go wash to get the mud off of his, of his eyes. So he'd never seen Jesus and they were saying, well, the, the Pharisees were after him. Well, who's the man who, who, who gave you your sight? And he says, well, I've never seen him. I can't pick him out of a lineup. And they asked his parents, Who is it? The major son see. And they said, Well, we know that's our boy. We know that he was blind. We know that he now sees. But that's all we're saying. You go ask him. And the text explains, Because they feared that they would become unsynagogued. No longer welcome in the synagogue. That was to be um, to be... Uh, expelled from your culture, from your world. And Peter called them to submit to public baptism in just that same way. You need to declare your allegiance. You can't have your feet in both worlds. It's either or. It's not both and. We can make an analogy. Um, Remember, Jesus called the rich young ruler to... Prove, if he said he believed it, prove it. Uh, give everything you have to the poor and come follow me. Luke chapter 18. I don't know anyone who argues from Luke chapter 18 that in order to become a Christian, you have to first liquidate all of your possessions. Uh, and yet people say, repent for the forgiveness of sins means that and be baptized, that you have to be baptized. I like the way um, John MacArthur put it in his commentary. He said, Salvation is not a matter of either water or economics. True repentance, however, will inevitably manifest itself in total submission to the Lord's will. Other passages of Scripture are quite clear. The Philippian jailer, Acts chapter 16, he asked uh, uh, Paul and Silas, What must I do to be saved? If ever there was a point that you had to be baptized, that would have been the time to say it. And what did they say? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ And you will be saved. And they gave him the gospel, and he believed, and he repented, and then he was baptized. Peter just um, mashes that together repent and be baptized. And we're going to see through the book of Acts that forgiveness is always linked to repentance. And we're going to see that people who hear and believe and repent then become baptized. That little preposition translated for, uh, for the remission of sins, that, that makes some people stumble. But understand, um, Greek prepositions can have quite a range of meaning. It can mean for the purpose of, it could mean that if you had other reasons to believe that, but it can also mean on the occasion of. Jesus used a similar um, construction when he, in Matthew twelve forty one He says, the people of Nineveh repented, because of the preaching of Jonah. He worded for the preaching of Jonah, just like for the forgiveness of your sins. So repentance is for forgiveness. Baptism follows forgiveness, but it doesn't cause it. So Acts 2, 38 and 39, look at them together. Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of The Holy Spirit. That was the gift that had come that day. The same thing that transformed those 120. He will transform you. He will come and live in you. For the promise, he says, is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to Himself. That same gift comes to everyone who believes. And he says, you and your children and then those who are far off Well, you and your children, who was he speaking to? Jews in Jerusalem on that day that the Holy Spirit arrived. Those who are far off, that's us. Far off in the terms of centuries later. Far off in the sense of miles. Far off in the sense of not even close to having all that God has given to His people, Israel. And in every case... The sovereignty of God is at work, and who receives salvation? It is for as many as the Lord our God will call to Himself. That day, He called a whole bunch of them. Each day since then, He's continued to call people to Himself. The compelling question is, what should we do? Compelling answer number one, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of of sins. Now, compelling answer number two, Different words in verse 40. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Now, we can tell from that verse that Luke recorded for us only an inspired synopsis of Peter's sermon. Uh, It lasted surely much longer than the few minutes it would take you or me to read verses 14 through 36 out loud. We can only imagine how much dialogue went on between individuals in that crowd and the 12 apostles, but we know it included many other words. And they were constantly bearing witness about Jesus, saying what they knew to be true about Him. And the verb form is quite clear. There was lots of exhorting that kept on taking place. They just were calling people, calling people, calling people. Submit to Jesus, your Lord. There's that rather picturesque command there. This is the second uh, compelling answer to the compelling question. Be saved. Be saved from this perverse generation. Now, he didn't just make that up on the spot. That's an echo of a line from the song of Moses which is in Deuteronomy 32, and that was one of the verses that was quoted on a rotating basis in the in the synagogue, so they would have been familiar with it. There, Deuteronomy 32, they have acted corruptly toward Him. That, the they referring to the, the generation that had died. Deuteronomy was just before the next generation was to enter the promised land. They have acted corruptly toward Him. They are not His children because of their defect, but are a perverse and crooked generation. Now, that word translated perverse, that's from a Greek word. It's one of those ones that you almost know, but you have no idea that you know it as a Greek word. Have you ever heard of one diagnosed with scoliosis? Scoliosis is a curvature of the spine. Now, if we take an x-ray of you from the side, you'll see that your spine has a curve to it. That's a good thing. If we take your x-way from the front or the back, your spine shouldn't have a curve in it. That's a bad thing. That's scoliosis. The Greek word scolios means bent or, or, or crooked. And Jesus used that, that verse and that imagery several times to describe the generation of the Pharisees and the Sadducees who rejected Him. The ones who said that all the miracles He does, He does them by the power of Satan. He called them a crooked and perverse generation. So Peter and the other apostles were calling people to do nothing less than repudiate what their apostate leaders had taught them. To come to the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. They didn't mince words. The only options they gave were in or out, yes or no, saved or lost, Jesus or anything else. And what a response. It was unprecedented, a colossal response. Look at verse 41. So then, those who had received His word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They didn't mince any words. They didn't water down anything. They didn't try to make it palatable and culturally relevant. There are no soft peddling the message. Peter said, this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. This is the kingdom program of God. Jesus is the king. Are you going to come to the king or not? And he called them to make a a radical, life-changing commitment. He called them to publicly repudiate the false teaching that they had been steeped in and to declare allegiance to Jesus Christ. There may even have been, probably were, some followers of the Pharisees or some Sadducees in that crowd. Maybe they came that day. But he didn't say... Now, we need to be a really inclusive group. There's different ways. People have different views about things. Yeah, they do. Right or wrong. Are you going to be right? Are you going to repent? He called them to the one way of salvation. He called them to risk becoming outcasts from their culture and from their families. How dare he set the bar so high? Well, you would think that would turn a lot of people off. Well, about 3,000 made the commitment, made the public declaration through baptism. Some people have said, well, that's not realistic. They couldn't have done that in one day. Well, there's been a lot of excavation gone on around the the first century temple in Jerusalem, and there are a whole bunch of little pools. They're called a mikvah, the plural mikvim. Um, there are pools for... Ritual cleansing for people who would come and prepare themselves for offering sacrifices in the temple. And I kind of imagine each apostle, maybe even others of the 120, taking turns and manning all of those mikveh where there was water. People lining up to be baptized. What a scene that had to be. Now would you file for future reference um, that... This is the first time in the book of Acts that mentions that the early Christians kept track of numbers and identities of people who committed to Christ. We've already seen that we knew there was 120. Somebody counted. Now there's 3,000 and we're going to see them still counting. Just just file that for future reference. We're going to come back to that later in the book of Acts as we talk about some um, 21st century applications. But The compelling question led to the compelling answer, number one, repent. Compelling answer, number two, be saved. The colossal response, and then change lives. Verse 42, Luke seamlessly tells us that this new group of people immediately began to live out the commitment that they made on that day. Verse 42 says, They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Who is they? 3,000 who were radically transformed. They were continually devoting themselves. There's a combination of of a, a verb and a participle there that means they were relentlessly tenacious about their new life in Christ and with one another. They were tenacious about the apostles' teaching. They didn't have a complete Bible yet. They didn't have a New Testament. The apostles' teachings are eventually codified in the rest of the New Testament, Romans through uh, Revelation. But they didn't have those, so they hung on every word they could get from the mouths of the twelve who had been with Jesus all that time and who were, by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, being given remembrance of all the things that they had been taught. And they were receiving new revelation. They were likewise relentlessly tenacious about their fellowship. This was a new spiritual partnership of believers that stimulated each other toward holiness and toward faithfulness. It includes encouragement and comfort and exhortation and bearing one another's burdens and the simple joy of friendship among those with like-mindedness sharing eternal life. And they continued steadfastly in The breaking of bread. Uh, That phrase in this verse refers to the Lord's table or communion. It says literally in the Greek, the breaking of bread, which denotes a specific breaking of bread that they had in mind that they would have learned from, well, the apostles' teaching. Um, We're going to see that used a different way in a moment. And it says, And they continued steadfastly to devoted to prayer. More accurately rendered, and the legacy standard says this, and to the prayers. It describes specific times that they set aside for prayers. And remember, they were devout Jews. They were devout enough that they had made a trek to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. So these were people that were already serious about their their faith, and now they had repented and put that faith in Christ, but they would have already had the habit of coming and praying at specific times. So that continued. So they had God's Word plus fellowship, plus the Lord's table, plus prayers. Those are genuine evidences of genuine conversion following repent and be saved. That was a compelling question. What should we do? Compelling answer, repent. Compelling answer number two, be saved. Colossal response, 3,000 were uh, saved that day and were baptized, changed lives, and that leads to their corporate testimony. Can you imagine what this did to the city of Jerusalem? Jerusalem at feasts like Pentecost and uh, and and Passover and the Feast of Lights, Jerusalem would swell to many times its normal population. There were huge crowds there. And look at verses 43 through 35. What an impact they had. It says, Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Literally, fear came upon everyone, the appropriate reverence for God. They kept feeling a sense of awe. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need now, we're not told about what the many signs and wonders were. It refers to miracles. They're called in Second Corinthians 12, signs of an apostle. Maybe for the people who weren't there, who didn't hear the mighty, the sound of the mighty rushing wind, who didn't see the ball of fire, who didn't hear the different languages, maybe in the next days or so, similar miracles were performed. We don't know. We're going to see in the next chapter the apostles performing a healing. And that's going to be another reason for more um, evangelism. But they're going to see more and more of that not only in the next chapter but as we go on through the coming chapters. And this group was totally committed to one another. I like that description. They were together and had all things in common. They looked out for each other. Remember, most of them we're far from home. We don't know how long they may have stayed in Jerusalem before they went home. But this, the description here means they shared generously with each other. It does not mean that they became a commune. It does not mean that everyone liquidated their wealth and put it into a common pool. It does mean that, and notice the qualifying phrase there, As anyone might have need, others stepped up to meet the need. And that led to, finally, continuing evangelism. These final two verses are here to let us know that this was just the beginning of something that continued with tremendous power, spectacular impact. Acts 2, 46 and 47. Day by day... So, this wasn't a one time thing. Day by day, continuing with one another in the temple. Now, that's not a surprise. It's the only place in Jerusalem at that time you could get a crowd that big together. And Jesus had said, This is my father's house. Oh, can you imagine how that rankled the Pharisees and the Sadducees when these hundreds and thousands of people kept coming to the temple every day? What a testimony. So, they continued with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. And that time when it says breaking bread, it doesn't say the breaking of bread, referring to the Lord's table. They ate together. They, they, just, they just shared. Um, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. They just lived their lives out in the open. And remember, a lot of them, far from home, I imagine, those who lived around Jerusalem did a lot of entertaining those days. And what Jesus had said just before the cross, the night before He went to the cross, was now being powerfully fulfilled. It was that same night that He said, um, remember me with this bread, remember me with this cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. He also said these words after He had washed their feet. Remember this in John 13, 34 and 35? A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Oh, was that put on display right after that sermon on that day of Pentecost. And you know what? It's still on display. We are those who were far off Gentiles on another continent in another millennium, with two millennia in between. And here we are, worshiping the same God, believing and preaching the same gospel, standing in the same grace, empowered by the same Holy Spirit. And we need to live out the reality of our salvation in Christ. Now, it can't be exactly the same. We don't have, you know, several times a year gatherings of thousands of people from, from out of town. What we do here on Sunday morning is the, the tip of the iceberg. Now, we do have a temple only about a mile from here, but we're not really welcome there, and we can't go there and uh, do what we do. But we can be steadfastly continuing, making it our number one priority that we come around the apostles' doctrine, that that we proclaim the Word, we do exposition of God's Word, just like Peter did on that day, and we study, and we learn, and we grow, that we have fellowship. Did you notice all those announcements that we made beforehand we have, a, we have a gathering after church. We have gatherings in homes. We have Sunday school. We have young people's gatherings. We're committed to each other. We're, we're family. When I came to Christ, it caused a rift in my family. Oh, but I had a much better family. The Lord's table, we'll keep doing that till he comes we do it regularly tenaciously prayers praying for each other we do a prayer guide every week we send it out by email we print it here we pray every time we get together this is the best evangelistic plan of all time bearing one another's burdens sharing they see that we love each other they know that we love Christ so let's pray Oh, Father, thank You for recording this. This is the beginning of our history, the history of the believers in the Lord Jesus Christ after He was raised from the dead and ascended again at Your right hand. Oh, we yearn for Him to come. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. May Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven as we seek to be faithful to you and what you would have for us. Please, our Father, don't let anyone leave here today not being part of this wonderful spiritual entity, the body of Christ, through faith in the one and only Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Put the message of the gospel in our hearts. Make us ready to share it, we pray, and then give us opportunities, we pray, even this week. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.